I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles or your devices to Revelation chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to have a, uh, an old-fashioned paper type, there's a blue one in front of you, and it's page 1034. We're in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. You know, as I was preparing this week's message, I was conflicted on how to begin because we're taught in preacher school, all right? That's a fancy word for, not a fancy word, but for a word for seminary. How we're supposed to catch somebody's attention and keep it. And when I studied this, the first commentary I looked at this week, one of my go-tos, it caught my attention and it kept it. Why? Because he said this. He said, chapter 12, and I quote, chapter 12 is the most symbolic chapter in the Bible's most, most symbolic book. Okay. I was unnerved. Why do you say, why do you say, why am I unnerved? Because I'm not going to tell some crazy, foolish story, a lighthearted little jovial jaunt to try to get your attention and keep it. Or I'm not going to go say something, whoa, did you hear what he said? No, I couldn't. How do I convey what I'm calling the cosmic conflict that John sees in chapter 12 of Revelation? How do I convey this and without... without being on my knees. In a way, how can I convey it that gives you hope, that gives you encouragement and vital inf information? It is information. We do need to know this about the main participants in the final drama. Put another way, the major characters in the Great Tribulation. Chapters 12 and chapters 13 give us those. In the last 3.5 years of this age, when Christ Jesus comes back and begins his rule and reign. So this is what I decided. I'm going to let the word of God speak for itself. When in doubt, trust God. <laughs> because if I, again, if I tried to, give you a crazy story or a funny story. Some might think it be, be a fairy tale, the, what we're going to look at. Is this some crazy, crazy talk? Is this some Aesop's fable? No. Brothers and sisters, this is serious. As serious as a heart attack serious. Vivid pictures that we'll study today in chapters 12 and 13 introduce to us the seven primary characters of the end days. The seven primary characters. And you'll hear these later on, but I'll give you the seven. They are as follows. First one, the woman. She represents the nation of Israel throughout the ages. The second, the dragon, representing Satan. The third, the male child, representing the Lord Jesus. Fourth, Michael, representing the angels, the holy angels, I might add. The fifth one, the remnant of the woman's seed, those being the believing ethnic Jews 
the believing those of Israel. Next week, the beast that comes out of the sea. It's a world leader. The world leader. And seventh, the beast out of the earth. The one who represents the false prophet who is the religious leader of the world in that time. Well, if you've been with us, you know that the seventh trumpet has blown. And we saw that in chapter 11, verse 15. And God's victory has been announced. Yes, Jesus wins. He wins. But that will bring rapid fire, rapid fire, final judgments, which are called the bowl judgments. And those begin in chapter 15. But before this takes place, John is allowed to see the prelude to the conflict. Right? This is, this is your first, this is the first note of the first, the first point. But we notice this, this clash, this war, this conflict has begun Millennia earlier. It began a millennia earlier, a long time ago. Let's look at chapter 12 and verse 1. And John writes, he says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, before we go too far this morning, we have to know what a sign is. Now, a sign is not a neon sign. It's not a neon sign showing you pull in here. It's not a billboard, although these signs in the scriptures do catch our attention like something like that would. No, a sign in the scriptures, especially in this context, is describing a symbol that points to a literal reality. A symbol that points to something that is very, very real. It's a vivid ca- a picture that catches our attention that's very hard to ignore. You can't ignore these things. Well, who is the woman? As you can imagine, there are many suggestions, and I would almost laugh and I go, you can't imagine how many suggestions that there are. But I'm going to give you the most prominent. Some say it's a picture of the universal church. Well, why would they say that? I don't know why they would say that, because it makes no sense to me whatsoever. But they say it's a picture of the universal church. You can show how much I really take that one seriously. But that was one of the major major ones that they think it is. But this woman, think about it, if it's the church, if it's the universal church, this woman gives birth to a male child, which we will soon see is Jesus. The church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. Jesus caused the church to come into being. So strike that one. Some believe, Roman Catholics in particular, that the woman is Mary, Joseph, or Jesus' mother. But as we'll read in verse 6, she doesn't fit the bill. She never has and she never will. The Roman Catholic Church also teaches that Mary, when she gave birth to Jesus, had no pain. 
Well, the last verse that we read, that we read, that I just read in verse 2, teaches against that. The woman church is Israel. National, ethnic Israel. If you, it will be on the screen, the scripture, in Genesis 37, 9. Joseph, we all remember Joseph. This is why you learn these stories in Sunday school, so all of a sudden, oh, a light comes on. Joseph had a dream, and Joseph told the dream to his parents, and he said this. Then he dreamed another dream and told told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. All right, so in this dream, Joseph is, he sees this dream. Joseph's father, Jacob, who was called Israel, is the one who was the sun. His mother was the moon, and his brothers were the stars. The picture, it brings the Abrahamic covenant into view. It shows us, all right, this is Israel. This is talking about a woman. This is what is happening here. So we can see the picture in that woman, the stars, the face like the sun. What about other Old Testament passages concerning the pregnant woman? In Isaiah 26, 16 and following, The Lord speaks about this. In Jeremiah, the prophets portray Israel and in other places as the unfaithful wife to Yahweh. The unfaithful wife. The most familiar and striking is Hosea's prophecy. When Hosea is told to go Marry a woman who is a whore and have children out of whoredom. And this is a picture of God bringing Israel to himself when she is unfaithful. But yet God takes her in. For all of her failings, and before we pile on, We need to remember we're far from perfect. Each one of us have done things that have been unfaithful to our Lord. But what has Israel done in the past? She has brought to us the scriptures. Every book in this Bible was written by a Jewish person. She has brought to us the apostles. And she brought to us the male child. Throughout her long history, this is said of her, she does suffer in birth pangs during God's judgment, but anticipates his redemption and renewal as the joyful result of such suffering. As Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, great is thy faithfulness. All the while he saw Jerusalem torn to bits. But he saw God's faithfulness.
But without a break, John sees something else. The cause of her suffering. Verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. As for his seven heads and ten horns, these are seen in Daniel chapter seven. This is where Daniel wrote about this. These are the end time kingdoms that would be present and in power in the end times. But these descriptions, don't get hung up on these descriptions because they don't mean anything in this passage. They have nothing to do with us this week. So I'm not going to explain them to you. Thank me later. But what we do know is they often symbolize ruling power. This is a ruling Power. Verse 9 plainly tells us who this dragon is. Satan. Satan. His color represents his intentions. What's the color of red, church? Blood. Specifically, what's he want to do? He wants to kill and destroy. Specifically, anything that any and anyone that is precious to God, which includes his chosen people. He wants to kill mankind, but especially those who serve and worship God. Well, how does Satan operate? Well, we understand that by Satan's influence and guidance, he uses governments and their power to destroy in an, in an attempt to thwart and, and subvert God's plans. He uses government. Yes, he, he uses people as well. He uses anything he can. With his tail, he swept down a third of the stars. The stars in Revelation, they speak of angels. Job 9.1 spoke of angels. In Job 38.7, a star spoke of an angel. These third of, the, third of an angel, or a third of them, they were seduced by Lucifer to rebel against God before man was created. We see this in Isaiah 42 and Ezekiel 28. Well, a third. How many is a third? Well, a third is a third. I don't mean that in a third way, but how many, how many angels? Well, earlier in Revelation, they couldn't count them. Myriads and myriads and myriads of holy angels. Well, if we can assume that there are myriads and myriads and myriads of holy angels... There's a myriads and a third of a myriad of evil ones. The scriptures tell us that Satan, while being removed from his dwelling in the heavenly, heavenly still continues to have access to God where he accuses the saints. Hear me. He accuses the saints day and night, and he still does that to this day. Why do you think you need an advocate? Why do you think the Lord Jesus is up in the heavens advocating for, for you? Because there is a devil, there is a Satan, there is a dragon that continually badmouths God's people. He did this with Job and he still does this today. Persistent he is, but also defeated he is. We'll continue in the middle of verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He might devour it. 
Now think with me through biblical history. I told you that this, this began in Genesis 3.15 when God said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Get a picture? The seed of the woman. Ever since then, Satan, the serpent, has tried to snuff out the coming deliverer. The attack of, of Abel by Cain. That was his first attempt. The polluting of the human race in Genesis 6. Why do you think God sent a flood? Because the human race was so polluted, only eight people were saved. The attacks on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You go through that. That's Satan operating, trying to destroy the godly line. The Abrahamic covenant, which God promised, through you, through you, the nations will be blessed. Why do you think Sarah, or Sarai, and then Sarah, was taken two times by kings to be their concubines? Because Satan was trying to defile her. The same happened to Isaac's wife. Fast forward to Egypt. Remember this story? And the new Pharaoh did not remember Joseph. What happened then? Every male child, he said, should be killed. Satan still trying to snuff out, to stamp out the male child. The constant battle with the Philistines. The constant battle with the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Canaanites. David being attacked by Saul after he was promised. Haman attempting to exterminate the Jewish race in the days of Esther. What about once Jesus was born? Do you remember the innocents being killed in Matthew? Those boys, two years old and younger, when Herod found out that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem? Satan still trying to snuff out the male child. The attacks of, on Jesus himself by Satan. Throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. God will save you. Or how about this? He's in Nazareth, his hometown of Nazareth, and he speaks God's word. And what do they try to do? They try to kill him. But his hour had not yet come. Because when Jesus did die, it was at the right time, at the right place, for the right reasons. God's plan could not be thwarted. The male child... Jesus, also known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. After waiting thousands and thousands and thousands of years since it had been promised, Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life. 
fulfilled the law perfectly, lived perfectly before, before God and man. And he died, giving himself as a sacrifice, taking away the sins for all of those who would believe. And the male child was buried. He rose again, providing what he said was true, proving what he was true, to be acceptable to God. And then he ascended, caught up to God. Caught up to God. Where he now sits at the right hand of God, as I mentioned before, advocating for you and me before a constant badgering attorney. There's nothing Satan can do other than attempt to destroy what he can. Men and women, he loses. He loses. Well, John's attention is now brought back to the woman. And he tells us, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God in which she is to be nourished for 1,000 260 days. Again, three and a half years. We'll talk about this more in detail later, but before we do, John observes conflict in heaven. How many of you like to read C.S. Lewis? I, I enjoy him. I, I enjoy his stuff. I'm going to quote him here, and I won't use an English accent, but I want you to imagine his voice. He writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Satan, who is the prince of the devils, is also pleased when mankind believes these things, too. Many choose to believe evil agents at their own peril. Nah, I don't believe that stuff. Or they cower in fear of what they believe that they can accomplish. As we already have alluded to, Satan has been cast down from heaven. He was cast down from heaven. He no longer resides there, but he still has access. What can he do and what he can't do? What can't he do? Well, here are some of the myths and in no particular order. Here's a myth. He wears a red suit. He has horns. And he has a pitchfork in his hand. And he bought this suit at Kohl's. He doesn't, sheep, he doesn't uh, you know, shop at a high-end place. But it wasn't Walmart. You know, nowhere in the scriptures is this spoken about. You know, think about it. It's easier to take someone less serious if they're wearing a clown outfit. 
How often do you take serious a, a guy with a big red nose and big shoes that come flopping in? You don't. Another myth is that he's in charge of hell. Don't raise your hand if you think that. Another myth is that he is in charge of hell. The fact is, he has not yet been there. He has not yet been there. And the Bible tells us that he won't set foot there until he's bound for a literal thousand years and then released to deceive the nations for a short time, and then he will be cast into the lake of fire where he will forever remain. And he's not in charge there. He's in the deepest, most horrible place that has ever been prepared for any created creature. What the scriptures do tell us about the dragon he was the highest ranked creature ever created. Think about that. He was the highest in ranking creature that was ever created. He was said to be covered in brilliant stones. He wasn't dressed in a red suit. He was dressed in awe. You looked at him and he sparkled. Step back. My goodness. He was beautiful, the son of the morning. He then became prideful. He wanted to be like God and rebelled. Jesus said he's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He spends his time traveling the earth roar, like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. That's what he does on earth. And he spends an equal amount of time in the heavens saying, you're a scum. You're a scum. Christ, you have him? How can you, how can you have them? How could you have her? And God looks at Jesus, and Jesus says, look at me. I'm good enough. They're in me. He hates mankind, especially those who are Christ. But understand, since he was swept out of heaven and sometime before Eden, he had access to heaven. But now John says something has changed. Something changed. We aren't told the exact moment, whether this happens during the rapture of the church. I could see this go, whoa, where'd they go? Uh-oh, I'm done. We don't know if it's during the rapture or during the first half of the tribulation or sometime just after, before, excuse me, the seventh trumpet sounds. But there's a final war in heaven that results in Satan being cast down to earth. He's no longer allowed in heaven. He's cast down, finished. You're there. You're no longer here. Let's pick up the vision in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. who's this Michael? We're learning about the characters. Who is this Michael? 
He's called an archangel in Jude 9. He is the highest of the holy angels. Will he be the one that blows the trumpet when the church is called? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the trumpet of the archangel? Well, I don't know. Could be. He's mentioned five times in the scriptures in Daniel 10, 13, and 21. Daniel 12, verse 1, in Jude 9, and Revelation 12, 7. And it says, he seems to be the highest of all the holy angels. And it seems that Michael is the leading angel having to do with the Jewish people. He is in charge of taking care of the Jewish nation. Daniel writes these words in Daniel 12 that coincide with our passage today. At that time, this time that we're talking about in Revelation, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Whenever this happens, whether it be during the last, sometime during the last seven years, one thing is for sure, victory, victory. Satan's second and permanent expulsion from heaven is and will be complete. You're out of here. Before we move on, let's go over the five-fold description of who this evil angel really is. He's not, again, the person in the red suit. These are his characteristics, and I do say his characteristics because he is a personal being. He's not a force. He is a person. Verse 9 tells us, And the great dragon was thrown down. Dragon speaks of his cruelty. That ancient serpent... Yes, that ancient serpent who lied to our first parents, who caused them to fall, who put the human race into sin. He's subtle and treacherous in his actions. Who is called the devil. Diabolos. It means slanderer. It means a false accuser. He accuses men before God. He accuses God. He accuses bad things about God to us. God's not faithful. Did he really say this? And he accuses men to other men. Did you hear what they said? Did you hear what they said? That person's not wearing a mask. That person's wearing a mask. How can they do? Oh, let's get, oh, let's get in an uproar. When we should be fighting him, we're fighting each other. He's doing a really good job. He's doing a very good job. Satan, he means, which means the adversary, both gods and men, the deceiver of the whole world. He's a liar. How much more do you have to know? When his lips move, he's lying. 
In what way does he attack you? In what ways does he attack you? Is it by his cruelty? Is it by his slandering? Is it by his accusations or his lies? You won't defeat the dragon by flesh and blood means. No, we're told to resist the devil, and what will he do? Resist the devil, and he will flee. We're told to put on the full armor of God so we can withstand against his schemes. Read Ephesians 6 today. It's a very good topic. It's a, something very good for you, to, for you and me to read. Satan is the exact opposite of the Lord Jesus. Where Satan, he's totally brutal. Jesus is kind. Where Satan always lies, Jesus never lies. He's the truth. And church, what does the truth do? The truth will set you free. Jesus is the one who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus, the one who has ascended and now sits on high, who will soon come down and reign supreme. That's where our Jesus is. And the dragon, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And when this happens, heaven again breaks forth in praise. If you don't like worship, you're not going to heaven. I'm just going to tell you that. You won't be there. Because if you're a believer, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, you're going to learn to worship. You will worship him because he's worth it. Look what they say. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I know this is a, a little baseball that I'm going to put on a tee. How did they conquer? By the blood. By the blood of the Lamb. There's no salvation in any other than through Jesus. If you're trying to get to heaven, if you're trying to get to God, if you're trying to please God by your own works, it's not cutting it. Turn to him. He's done it all. He's paid it all. How did the Ephesian church put on the armor of God? By faith. Through Jesus' blood, by faith. 
They didn't conquer. These people in Revelation, they didn't conquer with certain phrases. They didn't use the right words in the right order to cast somebody out or to, to make Satan stop. No, they conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And their faith was proved to be real, real faith, even if it cost them their lives. Even if it cost them their lives. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short, which brings us to conflict on earth. Some of the most sobering places that I've ever been to have been to two different Holocaust museums, one of them in Washington, D.C., and one of them in Jerusalem. They document the plight of the Jewish people in the time of World War II, where over six million of them lost their lives. Why? Because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. Because Satan's time is short and because he doesn't have access to God anymore and because he can't hurt the male child and because he can't slander the saints in person, he does what he can. And expanding on verse 6, where the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared by God, Verse 13, John picks up on that again. And he said, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Pursued here means to chase, to hunt down. Who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and time and half a time. Again, a different way to say three and a half years, times, two years, a time, one year, and half a time, three years. John was running out of ways to say 1260, all right? He was running out of ways to say for three and a half years. Daniel wrote of this in the book that bears his name in chapter eight, and Jesus spoke of this perilous time in which we know as the Olivet Discourse Listen as I read from Matthew 24. Jesus is talking and he sees the temple, the glorious temple, laying before them as he's on the Mount of Olives. And he declares, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation 
such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. More than the Babylonian exile, when they the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took them to Babylon. More than in 70 AD, where Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. More than the six million people who Hitler had a hand in killing. More than. More than. As to being taken into the wilderness to be protected, there's no way that we know that how this will happen. We don't know. Only that God will supernaturally and by the use of earthly means protect the Jewish remnant. Remember the remnant when the two witnesses were raised and they gave glory to God in heaven? When it speaks of two wings of a great eagle, of course it means speed. Of course it means that. But it also speaks of God's saving power, which is seen in Exodus 19 when God said this. He said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. But even more comforting, even more comforting to a hard-hearted person like I am, is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy about Yahweh's care for his people. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as an apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions. God taking care of his remnant. There they'll be nourished, fed like Elijah at the brook, fed like the entire nation in the wilderness for 40 years. Fed for, you guessed it, three and a half years. What a picture of God's care. Yet, the frustrated, angry serpent, not able to get it at the child, not able to slander the church, not able to get at these folks, now makes a last attempt to destroy the Jewish remnant. Verse 15 tells us, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now this is where I'm going, okay, is this literal or is it not? Uh, it seems more likely that since the entire chapter has been one of symbols... This could be one too. The dragon's vengeance goes out so powerfully like a flood, but it's turned away. Or it could be a real flood as well. I don't know. 
But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and that dragon that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And if he wasn't already, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's a scary picture. Who are those now being attacked? Are they the 144,000 who've been sealed? Or as some have speculated, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord? We don't know, but we know a believer in Christ is now at great risk. But one thing, church, I can tell you, God is faithful. God is faithful. God wins. Satan loses in this cosmic conflict. He loses. I know that the things here that I spoke about this morning are not easy to listen to. They're not fun, pleasant things to ponder, but they're truths that will soon take place. And these are truths that should drive us. to let those who do not know Christ know him. Don't be fearful for for what is ordained to come. This is ordained to come. This will happen. Expectantly look for ways to be faithful witnesses to those who have overcome be witnesses. How? By the blood of the Lamb. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. He wins. He won at the cross. Satan was defeated. The war is yet to be, is yet to be fought, but he wins. I'll finish with these words of Jesus. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Do you hear that? Your father. He even cares for a little bird. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. What a promise. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
That's also a promise. Don't deny. Tell the world what God has done for you. He has saved you. He has saved you from this that is to come. Father, when we hear things like this, it is unnerving. It can be scary, but then when we think and we understand and we know that you have ordained this, we have to rest in you. Lord God, we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony. We praise you.